0: Hey everyone, this is Mitch Jackson, AKA the streaming lawyer. I just had the great time with Ryan Folland on the World of Speakers podcast. We talked guest ranches, we talked basketball, we talked live streaming, and we talked about squirrels. I hope you guys listen. This was a blast. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Folland.
1: Everyone, we are back, and today we are going to trial. That's right, we are going to court with the one and only Mitch Jackson, who is known famously as the streaming lawyer, somebody who uses social media to essentially share the fact that he's human. And for those people who are not aware, lawyers are human. So I'd like to introduce and welcome to the show Mitch Jackson, the streaming lawyer who is a human. How are you doing today, Mitch?
0: Ryan, I can comfortably confirm with you and your audience that I am a human being. I'm married to a lawyer who also happens to be a human being. And my daughter, who's in her, she's finishing up her second year of law school at USC is a human being. So now it's good to be here. And I love the topic. I love what you're doing. I follow you on social media. And I can't wait to share, you know, maybe some of the approaches and tips that that we use in the courtrooms, how I bring those onto the stage to connect with my audiences. And then when I watch someone on stage like you, just dominate the audience, how I take some of the things I watch you do back into the courtrooms to win my cases. So it's a pleasure to be here. And even more so, it's a pleasure to be a human being. <laughs> yes,
1: I like that. Now, the, the great thing is not everybody wants to be in court all the time. So we're going to bring everybody to court without the fear and anxiety of being in court, right?
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hey, listen, it's I'm more comfortable standing up in court talking to 12 people, aka a jury who I've never met before. I'm more comfortable doing that oftentimes than walking into a movie theater. It, it's kind of weird, but I just love what I'm doing. And and, that, and hopefully by the time we're done, I'll share some some new speaking tips that maybe members of your audience haven't heard about before.
1: Yeah. And when it comes to the power of persuasion, there's nothing more classically and traditionally traditional than actual courtroom. I mean, there's that is the original drama. That is where everything plays out. That is where you have to persuade a jury who are uh, there open minded to listen and learn And it's probably one of the original stages that, uh, you know, this country was founded on that, that the world really comes together and says, all right, we've got a conflict, we've got some mystery, let's figure it out. And I think that it's a very translatable to the stage. So I'm excited to have you here. But before we get into the speaking and all the tips, you know, sounds like attorney... Genetics is in your lineage. So, have you done like a 23andMe and found out that you come from a string of attorneys? How did it all start?
0: How did you get into this? (laughs) I would be afraid to find out what my DNA indicates. (laughs) So, Ryan, I you know, real quick, you know, it's interesting on social media how how the tagline or or the term storytelling has become the big thing over the last five or ten years, and you know, lawyers have been telling stories in court uh, using storytelling techniques to. To persuade jurors and make their point, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I kind of get a kick out of everybody jumping up and down when they when they hear the term storytelling. But it's something that good communicators have been doing forever. So my story is: I grew up on a ranch in Tucson, Arizona, blue collar family. First one from my family uh, to go to college. And uh, but on the ranch, Ryan, we had people from all over the world come and stay, and I watched my mom and dad communicate with the guest. A very well-known guest, guests like Walt Disney, John Wayne, Morley Safer from 60 Minutes, who whose butt I kicked on the tennis court when I was 14 years old. And um, but I watched them really connect with the guest on a, on a human level, and. There was a uh, lawyer that lived up the street, and we used to do a lot of scuba diving down the Sierra Cortez together, my dad and Fred and I, and he was a prosecutor. And I, I realized, listening to his stories, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, long story short, after graduating from college, I uh, went to law school, immediately opened up my own uh, my own law firm, met my wife in law school, and and we've been married for the last 30 years, and she's been my partner for the last 28 of those 30 years. So that's, that's kind of my journey. I became a lawyer because I love helping people, love making a difference. But you know what, Ryan? It comes down to being able to communicate, being able to make your point, being able to be a good negotiator. Uh, my stage is the courtroom. But as you know, I also speak around the country at lawyer conventions. I'm speaking on Thursday at the uh, uh, State of Ohio Trial Lawyer Association Convention. I'm sharing some social media tips with the lawyers there so that they can show their human side to, to their clients and audiences. And, um, so it's just been a fun journey over the last 32 years, but I'll tell you something. I know I'm doing something right because every single morning when I get up, I'm excited about coming into the office. I'm excited about helping people and I'm excited about learning a new communication tip. That's what I do each and every day. So it's good to be here. And that's, that's my short story.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's a very cool story. One thing that kind of perked my ears is, you know, what kind of a ranch was it that your parents had to where you have all these amazing people come through your house?
0: So it was. It's called the Dude Ranch, and so okay. people, yeah, people from all over the world will come in and play cowboy for a week, and <laughs> and it was just a, a great, great great way. Style, right? Hey, it was a great way to grow up and and meet a lot of interesting people and really see how different people from around the world, different cultures, different professions, different industries. What makes them unique? What makes them different? And I think that foundation early on was what really did help me be able to connect almost instantly uh, with jurors. And, you know, when it's all said and done, win my cases for my clients.
1: So, in something like the Dude Ranch, were there situations where, you know, you would take on these alter personas and you'd sort of throw on the cowboy hat and, and play sort of a part? Did your parents do that? Was there sort of a, a bit of a theater to it, or was it more just, we're going to go on horses, and we're going to you know loop ropes around and do stuff like that. Was there characters that you would take on, or was there a theatrical element to it?
0: It's almost like you were standing behind me while I was growing up. That that's a great <laughs> question. So I grew up on the ranch. I grew up as a cowboy. It was all natural for me. But uh, I'll tell you, as I got older, it was interesting. I started gravitating towards you know your traditional high school sports. I raced motocross for 38 years, so I'd rather, you know, throw my leg over the back of a dirt bike than a horse. That's just what was more interesting to me. Having said that, if I had to take 10 or 12 guests out on a ride where I would rather be out riding my dirt bike on the local tracks, I'd throw on my cowboy boots, my chaps, we'd go out there, I'd saddle up the horses and play cowboy and take them out for a ride. So yes, there was a certain opportunity to learn how to be a chameleon, to learn how to give your audience what it is that they're expecting. And that's very perceptive of you to ask me that question. I've never been asked that question before.
1: Yeah, because I, mean, I can really, you know, I went in undeclared in college and ended up with a business degree and a theater degree and sort of dove into And I was fascinated by, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief and this ability to take on different characters. And it's not a disingenuous. A lot of times it comes with the ability to connect better with your audience. And if you have people that are coming to be cowboys, you kind of have to put on the cowboy hat. And it sounds like that's what you had from sort of your the The truth of what you were. but this idea of carrying on a certain type of character, I can see how that lends itself to the courtroom, to the stage. I mean, there's still the consistency of who you are. But being able to be aware of these different slight variations in characters sounds like you had an accelerated opportunity to do
0: that growing up sometime a, sometimes a forced opportunity. In other words, even when <laughs> I didn't want to do that, you know it was game on. That's I grew up in a business where it was twenty four seven. But it's interesting because that's what's made me the person I am today. Now, in all fairness, my dad uh, was one of the Marlboro men on the commercials, one of the Winston commercial uh, cowboys, both both cigarette manufacturers back in the day. One of those cowboys. My mom was on the cover of Newsweek magazine. I grew up in a family where my mom and dad were pretty well known because of the guest ranch industry. It was one of the top ranches in the world. And, and so it did give me an opportunity and I want to use the word opportunity. It wasn't a burden. It was an opportunity to really learn some skills that I would not have learned had I grown up, you know, three blocks down the street at a neighbor's house. So it was fun and it took, it did teach me a lot of the, Let's just say different things that you just mentioned to the audience. It it taught me to be nimble, to be light on my feet, to be able to mirror other people. But at the same time, Ryan, you know, it's always important to do what you believe in. You know, what are your core beliefs? To always stand up. I always tell people, stand up, stand tall, and be loud, especially in today's world when it comes to politics, when it comes to social issues, whatever your thoughts or opinions may be. I'm a firm believer not to be quiet about it. In other words, we only go through life once. So as a lawyer, I'm here to make a difference, to help others. And part of my DNA is to be loud and clear when it comes to social injustice and things like that. So I talk about these things when I'm in court. I talk about these things when I'm on stage and I absolutely share my thoughts when I'm um, posting and commenting and engaging on social media.
1: Two words are coming to mind, desensitized and energized, whether it's just because they kind of sound similar, but you know, when people grow up in situations that there's an overload of maybe the same thing, like the dude ranch is kind of the groundhog's day of these different guests that are coming, you have to repeat and redo it. But it seems like that can go one of two ways, you could sort of be desensitized to that whole concept, or it could make you energized. And just from your voice and from your memories and from the way you describe it, I think it's an interesting situation of of a Groundhog Day type of situation where you have these people that are coming in, you have this you know, environment, and you have this entertainment, you have these stories, but then that's repeated over and over, and you can take these situations and be desensitized or energized, and it's fun to see something like that in you that that is constantly energizing, and it's not like you're dragging ass around to the next spot. It's like <laughs> everything seems to sort of build on each other, and the fact that you love what you do, you wake up in the morning, I think people are missing that maybe because they get desensitized to the routine, but you seem like you found a way to energize that routine. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
0: Well, I'm looking over at the far side of my office. I'm in my office right now and I've got a big black couch sitting up against the wall underneath some pictures. And I feel like I need to go over and lay on the couch right now because (laughs) you are making me think back to my early years as to who I am and why I am the way I am you're probably right about all that. Listen, I know you're a, a big fan of Tony Robbins. I was checking out some things online and and with all of your speaking courses and things like this. And for me, moving out to California to go to law school, I knew one person when I moved out here. I decided I wanted to, uh, wanted to become a lawyer. I loved uh, spending two years up in South Lake Tahoe, being a ski bum, working at Caesars, which was up there at the time, But I also realized I wanted to become a lawyer, so I took the initiative, I gave myself permission to move out here to California and to go to law school. I was afraid when that happened, I I was wondering if I made the right decision, but I also knew that all the successful people I met at the ranch, and success, by the way, in my opinion, is people that were happy with their lives, they did what their core values told them to do, and I knew that I could not spend the rest of my life in Tucson, as much as I love Tucson my friends and family are there. I knew for me, I needed something different. And I think all of those qualities, all those experiences kind of empowered me to take risk, to keep moving forward on a daily basis. And, you know, to move to California, go to law school, open up my own firm. You know, you're down here in Southern California where I am. Yeah. And you've probably spent time down Laguna Beach and there's some basketball courts down there at a beach called main beach. So they're right there on the sand. Well, when I was going to law school here in Southern California, that's where I spent my evenings each and every evening. I was down at the courts playing ball. Every weekend I was down at the courts playing ball. That's how I started building my, my client, um, my client base. Uh, before I passed the bar, I had guys and gals down there asking me, Mitch, when are you, when are you going to take the bar? When are you going to become a lawyer? I've got a case for you. I've got a new company I need advice on. So that was my initial marketing efforts. It was just you know, playing ball, talking trash out on the court. But all of that came from the early experiences on the ranch, the ability to do that and have fun doing that. And also, Ryan, one of my little secrets in life is I've never taken myself too seriously. I mean, life's too short. There's too many challenges and too many things happening beyond our control, whether I'm in the courtroom whether I'm on stage in front of 500 people. Some of these things are just beyond your control. So you have to learn how to roll with the punches. You have to learn uh, from your mistakes, from those unexpected consequences. And then you have to keep molding, building, and moving forward. That's been my secret. And that's what I'm trying to teach my two kids each and every day. Not that they listen to me, but that's the game plan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, a human lawyer who doesn't take himself too seriously oh, no. and builds relationships and clients by talking trash on the basketball court is a storyteller and is somebody who is really sounds like you're paying it forward. I mean, you're, you're instilling these same things within you know your own family unit, but with this concept of you're bridging this gap to the world wide web, I mean, you're, you're inspiring a lot of people to go out there and stand up for what they want uh, to see, the changes they want to see and then empowering them with their voice. So let's transition into the voice, right? Because it is your moneymaker, and it is the, the vehicle in which you can help create the social change, the vehicle in which you can defend somebody, the vehicle in which you can prosecute somebody. How important is the voice when it comes to really just like your existence as a human to move that dial forward?
0: It's probably one of the most important business assets I have, and I wish I had known this back in high school and college, Ryan. I spent more time in high school and college playing sports and racing motocross, flying hand gliders, uh, windsurfing than I did studying. I'm lucky to be where I am today. But I will tell you, over the last 32 years of practicing law, almost on a weekly basis, I've been reading books. I study communication techniques. I watch the best speakers in the world, you know, doing TED Talks and things like this. And so I've always tried to perfect who I am, what I do, and how I do it. Now, I will tell you that... I've never been accused of being the sharpest knife in the drawer, but to effectively communicate, you don't need to be. In other words, what you need to do is speak from the heart. You need to tell the truth. You need to be passionate about the position or the client that you're representing or the position that's at issue in a court of law. And those have been my secrets. Once I realized that it's okay not to have to put together a perfect sentence, it's okay to talk in a scrambled fashion for 30 minutes during an opening statement. What's even more important is obviously put in the work. My, my secret in life, Ryan, is to outwork the other side. That's my secret. When I see young lawyers down at the courthouse and they'll say, Mitch, where did you learn how to, actually, they'll say, Mr. Jackson, where did you learn how to give a closing argument like that? They're looking for an app. They're looking for a pill. They're looking for an easy solution, right? <laughs> totally right? And I'll tell them, I'll say, well, you know, 25 years of doing this. You know, thirty years of doing this—it's it, just something that that you get better and better at over time. But what I realized after my first four to five years of practice, Ryan, is not to try to be like anyone else, not to try to speak like anyone else, not to try to be like who I thought was the best lawyer in town, and and try to come across like him or her, but to just give myself permission to be myself and to speak in using words that jurors are going to understand, to be honest, and once again to speak from the heart. That's been my little secret, and. I kind of forgot what the original question was, but that's where we ended up in my answer. So That's <laughs> right.
1: I'm, I'm here to keep you on track. And you actually set yourself up for me to set this whole thing up. The initial concept was how important is the voice in a yeah. general sense. And you talked about how it's your biggest business asset. You wish that you could have known that earlier. And four words stuck out. Normally, it's only three because three is the, the most amazing number. So we can even throw one of these out to make it three. But you mentioned a couple of things. Heart truth, passion, and positioning. And I would love to dig in a little bit on your advice from a technical, this this app that everyone's looking for, right? Uh, Understanding that it's the hustle and hard work that really makes the app come alive for the shortcut. But what are the tricks that you use using your voice to communicate heart, to communicate truth, to communicate passion, and the positioning? We'll hit each one and unpack them. Because I mean, anybody who's listening to you so far, you're leading with your heart, but how do you communicate the heart through your voice? Are there any tactics or specific things that you've learned that you wish you would have known in high school that now we can help those people know without the 30 years of
0: grind? Absolutely. And maybe starting with what I do in court in front of a jury, and then understand that everything I'm talking about in court would work from the stage also. It'll work, work in the boardroom. It. It'll work during a negotiation at an arbitration office. It all starts with being prepared and giving yourself permission and empowering yourself to leave your notes on the counsel table, on the lectern, to walk away from the lectern over in front of the jury, and to use your eyes, to look each and every juror in the eye when you speak, when you when you're answering their questions, especially during jury selection or what we call voir it's to ask open-ended questions, and then while you're asking the question that you really want to know the answer to, stop talking and start listening. It's about listening more than you speak. But while you're listening, look that juror in the eye and use your facial and body your facial expressions and your body language to show that particular juror that you care as to what he or she is saying. Even if you disagree with what they're saying, show them that you care, show them that you're listening. I think that's that's the first step in accomplishing that particular goal. It's using your eyes, it's being prepared, and it's showing that you care, and it's actively listening.
1: This whole idea of leaving the notes, I think that's really cool. And like leaving the lectern, we might have heard before, but this concept of leaving the notes. Real quick, is do you find value personally in writing the notes so that you have some sort of process, and then do you leave them? Like, Tell me about your note process.
0: So for me, when I, for example, have to give an opening statement, and I personally feel that most of my cases are won during jury selection and opening statements. Those are the first two opportunities in a jury trial where I can actually communicate directly with the jury. Yeah, most of the time, I know whether or not I've won the case by the time I'm done with my opening statement. You just, you just know, wow. okay.
1: And you, do you think the same thing translates to a stage when you're talking with your audience? Is that is is your opening statement or your intro really where
0: you get them? I think so, Ryan. I think I think that what yeah. we need to understand is right now everyone's biggest assets are time and attention. Nobody has enough time. Nobody. Uh, either can get enough attention or give enough attention. So, because of that, whether I'm in court and my audience is a jury or my audience is uh, a traditional audience, while I'm speaking from the stage, everything I do is about time and attention. It's about you know finding that intersection of oh I don't know timing, trust, need when I'm speaking, uh, when I'm picking a jury, when I'm giving an opening statement. It's respecting the limited time my jurors have because they don't want to be there, but it's also making my point. It's also about engaging, entertaining them, grabbing their attention. So the first thing I usually try to do, whether I'm giving, uh, picking a jury or giving an opening statement or when I take the stage, is the first thing I try to do is immediately let that audience know that they're here for a reason, I'm here for a reason, and I'm not going to waste their time. And the way I do that is oftentimes I'll start off with a, a short one- or two-minute captivating story that's relevant to the topic I'm speaking about or it's relevant to the audience. It's relevant to the audience's needs. That's why I'm there, and the topic I'm speaking about is relative to that. Oftentimes it'll be sharing a, uh, an interesting statistic maybe some a breaking news story that relates to what we're talking about and how I'll be tying the trial or how I'll be trying my, uh, tying in my speech into that breaking news story, that particular concept. So it's immediately grabbing the audience's attention. And then once I do that, Ryan, what I'll normally do both in trial and from the stage is, is after a couple of minutes of doing that, I'll take a step back, I'll thank them for being, for being here, thank the people that introduced me, let them know that at the end of the um, presentation I'll be opening up for questions, and then I dive into my presentation. So I try to take control of the situation in the courtroom or from the stage. I try to pre-answer all of their questions because that's what a lot of people wanna know if they can answer questions. My jurors do, which they can't during a trial, oftentimes and people in the audience during a a traditional stage presentation, and then dive into the content. That seems to work really well for me. You're taking them by the hand, and you're letting them know what's going to happen. Obviously, then you, you share your content, you put on your trial, you share your presentation from the stage, and then when it's done, I open it up for questions, and when that's done, I give my closing argument in court. I want to be the person having the last say. I want to make sure I plant that seed I want them to leave the courtroom and go back into the jury deliberation room, remembering exactly what I said and what I need them to do. When it comes to speaking from the stage, I also want to wrap things up with a two to three minute story, quote, statement, call to action, whatever it might be. I want to take charge of how things are wrapped up. And that works really, really well. But here's the thing. A lot of people, Ryan, will talk about, especially on social media, there's nothing more important than telling a good story. It's all about telling a great story. Yeah, that's really, really important, but there's something that's even more important, in my opinion, than telling a good story, and that is empowering your audience. I can tell the best story in the world, but if my jury isn't empowered, and if they don't think they have permission to take the desired action, then that two-week jury trial is going to be for naught. If I'm speaking from the stage, and I tell a great story or stories during my presentation, but in the end, I haven't empowered my audience to take action, then it's been a complete waste of time. So I really want people to think about telling good stories, but at the same time, empowering their audience to take action is so critically important.
1: That is, that is a lot to unpack there. One of the things that seemed to be notable was the your conscience of time and timing and the amount of information and the nuggets, the nugget delivery. Do you feel, do you think that being aware of this squirrel, squirrel, you know, kind of concept that we have, you know, the jurors, when they're not listening to you, they're probably scrolling through looking for thumb stopping content, or they're reading an article headline, feeling like they read the whole thing. Or, you know, do you feel that the culture we're experiencing right now from an attention, because you talked about this, you know, really time and attention. How are you leveraging what you're seeing on social media? And is that influencing your you know, the way that you are communicating with a jury or an audience.
0: It does influence how I communicate. And I know for a fact it, commu- it it influences how my jurors listen to what I'm saying. So just so we're clear, when I'm trying a case, the jurors are not allowed to have their phones out. They're supposed to sit, listen, and take notes. We all know that during bathroom breaks, during lunch, when they go home at night, they pull out their phones. And even though the judges instructed them not to independently investigate or go online and read about the case, because a lot of my cases are high-profile cases. I know for a fact that they do. They're not going to admit to it, but the reality of life, as you just explained, that's the way people operate in today's digital world. So with all of that in mind, what I try to do, and what what you've seen speakers do from the stage is, if I'm trying to make a point, and I can make that point in 45 seconds or a minute and a half, then that's what I do. I don't spend 5, 10, or 15 minutes trying to make the same point with multiple diagrams, multiple examples, multiple witnesses, uh, multiple comments. What I try to do is be short, concise, and to the point, and at the same time balancing the need to, to accomplish that goal of communicating that point to my audience, whether it's a jury or a traditional audience, but it's just understanding the new dynamic of communication. It's understanding that people don't need to be told the same thing over and over and over again, especially in a court of law. They're not going to like it. They don't want to be there. They don't even like me as a lawyer to start off with, right? Mm-hmm. And so the last thing you want to do is anything that's going to rub them the wrong way and start having them daydreaming in the middle of a middle of a case instead of listening to the evidence. So I try to keep things popping. You know what I mean? I always try to keep things keep yeah. shaking. New witnesses, I catch everybody by surprise, by calling somebody that nobody expects, showing a diagram, a PowerPoint, maybe something physical. Maybe it's me rolling on the floor to show how somebody was hit by a vehicle and was knocked to the ground, or somebody was assaulted in a bar fight. Whatever it might be, there are all types of ways to immediately shock or grab the audience's attention in a genuine way. So you're making your point. And I found that to be something that they actually appreciate. And I know that's the case because after our trials, Ryan, we get to talk to our jurors. Mm. The judge tells the jurors, if you'd like to speak to any of the attorneys, meet down in the lobby on the first floor, they'll be down in about 15 minutes and you can ask them questions. And so we always ask our jurors, you know, what can I do, even when I win a case and I win most of my cases, but what can I do to more effectively represent my clients? What could I have done different? And usually the jurors will say something like, you need to speak more slowly. You did a great job, but you talk so fast. You need to speak more slowly. So guess what I do during the next case? My next trial, a month later, I'll speak a little bit more slowly, right? After the trial, I come down, the juror's like, you need to speak faster.
1: (laughs) So- well this is interesting. So it's uh, what I'm hearing is that there is an awareness about the current state of how people like to receive information and you're not only playing on that but you're also actively looking for feedback along the way and you'd mentioned earlier you know you'll go watch a TEDx talk or a TED talk uh, or somebody on stage at a major conference and you'll be looking for those elements to bring into you know to what you're doing. So I love the fact that it's just constantly evolving rather than just sort of stuck in a certain amount of ways and you're like, nope, this is how we're
0: doing it. No, you've got to, you've always got to keep an open mind, uh, keep open ears, you know, and listen to what your audience wants and then give them what they want. And in today's world, people want what they're experiencing on a daily basis, whether it's social, whether it's the evening news, they expect us to deliver a product, in my case, my voice, my words, my client's case, a certain way, and you've gotta deliver that product that way. If you want a million dollar verdict, then you have to give your jury a million dollar presentation. It really is that simple.
1: What's your favorite social media platform?
0: My social media, my favorite social media platform is probably live streaming and live video, whether it's Facebook Live, whether it's Periscope, AKA Twitter Live, I'm a big fan of live video because it allows me to to connect with people, look them in the digital eyeballs, engage in real time, and for some reason, it's just been a game changer for my firm. Back in 2011, there was a platform called Spreecast, and it was put together by Jeff Floor, who was the co-founder of StubHub. Jeff sold StubHub, got a little bit bored, I think at 26 or 27 Opened up Spreecast. And on the Spreecast platform, it gave me a chance to connect with people like Katie Kirk, Anderson Cooper, Peter Diamandis, Gary Vaynerchuk, and a lot of other very well known uh, people. And had it not been for that live video platform, that wouldn't have happened. So, what we fast forward to today, what we try to do on a weekly basis, two or three times a week, is we jump on live video wherever I am and whatever I'm doing, whether I'm down at the beach taking a run with my smartphone or if I'm here in the office. And we'll do shows, and we'll newsjack breaking news stories, or we'll talk about, uh, we'll answer questions that consumers have. So it's just a really powerful medium to connect in real time with people that might not otherwise have access to me or to guests who I've have on the show. So live streaming in general, but I'm a big fan of Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. I think those are my my favorite platforms.
1: And when you're talking about the content that you're delivering in different packaging, it makes me think of these feeds on these different channels and how people are using basically the, the space, the characters that they have, the opportunity for an image, a video, a live stream. And it's a, at the core, people are trying to deliver messages. But this idea of being fluid and looking for new best practices and being aware of your audience are almost like different filters or different ways that people are being creative whether it's a cinema graph or whether it's a moving graphic or a 30 seconds with a, an audio showing that's behind it. I'm really having this connection between the ways that you are. I don't want to say manipulating because people are going to think lawyers manipulating. No, it's that you're taking advantage of the different types of, I guess, filters or different ways of being creative with the content. But at the end of the day, these are words that you're stringing together, right? A post is a, a series of words and emojis and images but at its core, like it's just for face value what it is. But the dynamics come when it becomes live or you use a certain emoji string of emojis or you're grabbing them with a hook sentence in the beginning or it's the opening. And what is exciting for me is that it becomes an even playing field where everybody has the same amount of characters on Twitter. But how are you going to put those together in a way that resonates with the audience and gives them empowerment, gives them calls to action? So just as you're talking, I'm imagining the ways that you can manipulate the same type of content to just drive harder and drive further out there into the world.
0: I love that you you talked a little bit more in detail about this. I actually look at it as different ways to build meaningful long-term relationships. Everything you just described, I look at as building relationships. One of the biggest challenges I see is, when I, and I speak around the country and everybody associates uh, what they want to do with their business or with their profession to marketing it on social media, and I don't believe that marketing on social media works. I don't like being marketed on social media. I don't like being disrupted. But what I do like on social media is building long-term quality relationships. And so by using all of the tools and approaches you just mentioned, what I think of it as is I'm building relationships I'm building new referral sources. I'm build, making new connections because a lot of my online social media stuff, Ryan, it's about my why. It's not about my law firm. The, my little secret is I share my why on social media. Why do I get out of bed in the, mor- in the morning? Why did I become a lawyer? Why do I enjoy doing the things that I'm doing? My why's just briefly, whether it's community service through the Rotary Club. I'm a fourth generation Rotarian. I'm a past President of my club and past interact district governor here in Orange County. That's my why. I like helping people. Uh, My why is working out and running and flying my drones. My why is being on the sidelines of my son's soccer uh, games or track meets at Danny Hills High School or going up and watching my daughter at USC compete in Moot Court. Those are my whys. And when I when I share content about those whys, which between you and me, of course, I'll appropriately integrate what I do for a living. I'll mention that I'm a lawyer, but I'll never be quite the lawyer as my daughter and her friends after watching them in moot court, right? And I really do mean that. Mm -hmm. Just totally Mm -hmm. impressive kids. But, yes, there's an integration there. But what I found on social is I build relationships because I share my why. It's okay as a professional to show your human side. In fact, you must show your human side if you want to be effective on social. By doing that, you're building relationships and you have to keep in mind, and one thing I've, I've noticed over the years, because I was on, you know, our first website went up in 1996. I'm an early user of the internet, digital platforms, and especially social media. The truth of the matter is, social media platforms will come and go. Relationships will last a lifetime. So you have to focus on the relationships. You have to engage on the platforms in a way that your audience expects you to engage on those platforms. They're all different. But as long as you cross out the M for marketing and put in a big capital R for relationship, that's where the magic happens.
1: I dig that. I, as soon as you were saying you take you cross out the M and you put the R, it's uh, remarketing. It's remar- <laughs> something about something. Okay, there's something here like marketing, but you add an R for relationships and it becomes remarkable. Like it's, I, I, there's some sort of remarketing to there. there, I like
0: some, We're gonna need to hashtag it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, this is a great sort of transition into helping people understand how they can help to monetize their why. And, you know, the message that you have is closely tied in with your why, and it also has to do with what you're doing and who you are and all of that. But I'm guessing your answer on how to monetize your message is to not try to monetize your message and to just build a relationship. So I'd be curious how you how you have found success. I mean, from the basketball court, to you know, a live platform, what are some of the things that you've done to build relationships that have been most effective to get you an opportunity to speak in front of thousands of people, to get in front of these influencers that you, know, you then build better and real relationships with that then creates this larger halo on top of it all? What are some of the things that actually work to help monetize, knowing that you're not going money first? But sure. how would you help people reverse engineer the success that you have had when it comes with communicating?
0: So the first thing I would just share with everyone is it's a long-term play. The reality is uh, I know the success I've had as a lawyer and the success that I'm enjoying online and the relationships that I'm building, it's a long-term play. It takes time. So that's the first thing. And so you have to give yourself time by being consistent, adding valuable content that helps other people, listen 70% of the time, maybe speak 30% of the time. That's what seems to work really well for me. But having said that, and I wish I could claim credit for this, one of my favorite books was a book written in 1937 by Dale Carnegie, and it's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And Ryan, I know, such a great book, yeah. And, and so, and I'm sure everyone in your audience is familiar with this book. But here's the thing: it's more applicable today because of social media and digital than ever before. If you take Carnegie's approaches. Using people's names, asking open-ended questions, being a good listener, being sincere, being strategically transparent okay? Smiling
1: more. That's my favorite one. People ask me like, what's the best tip of advice? And I, and I throw back that book and I go, just smile more. Like the world opens up.
0: I love that. You know, it's, there's the old proverb, a man without a smiling face must not open shop. <laughs> and I think that applies to in the real world, but it also applies to social media. If you're not in a good mood, if you're not positive and energetic and smiling while you're, you're doing your podcast or writing that blog post or, or sharing on Twitter probably best to take a step back, do what I call as a push away, and um, and do something else for a while because people pick up on that. Stay positive, use a lot of the techniques that Dale Carnegie wrote about, and that's been my secret. It works really, really well.
1: Okay, and I've got a, a tweet to your proverb, and maybe this is one that we can claim. A man or woman without a smile on their face what, say yours again, and I'm going to do it because I've got something. So
0: mine's actually taped to my monitor because I look at it every day, and it's, an, it's okay. an ancient Chinese proverb, but I think we do need to update it. The actual quote is A man without a smiling face must not open shop.
1: Okay, here, a man without a smiling face should not get a headshot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Look at some of the headshots out there, especially with professionals. Yeah. You look like someone's, you know, it looks like someone just had their big toe hit with a hammer. I mean, as Guy Kawasaki talks about, you know, show your big, beautiful smile with the crow's feet, you know, right across your face, maybe with a bright shirt on, you know, show the world your big smile, who you are, what you believe in all in a picture. I mean, that's the first step on social media, right? Because we never have a second, we never have a second chance to make a good first impression. And oftentimes our profile pictures are the first thing that people see, make a good impression, people.
1: Yeah. And a smile is key to that. So this idea about one thing I'm curious about from building relationships and having this core messaging this content. What do you feel about the ratio between sharing your why and then sharing sort of the, success, the successes along the way? Because there are some people who are sharing their why, but it's maybe in front of an expensive car, maybe that they're leasing or in front of a house that maybe isn't theirs. And there's this. There's this sort of, just as much as storytelling is becoming more and more popular, so is authenticity. And there seems to be this balance that people are playing with to where it's one thing to say, here's why I'm passionate about sharing my message. It's another one to say, look at me on the stage. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But to some extent, you have to share your small victories and be excited about it. Is there a ratio of sharing success to sharing your why that you find works so people are intimidated by you and your successes, but actually are excited about your success and your why?
0: That's such a great question. The ratio that I found that works well for me as a lawyer is about 80-20. 80% of what I share is about other people. It's showing my interest in what other people are doing. It's sharing other people's content. It's about uh, sharing my why as a dad, as a husband, as someone that's active in the community. The other 10 or 20% uh, will be about a case that our firm handled, a verdict that we obtained, maybe commenting from a legal perspective, newsjacking, a breaking legal news story. That ratio for me has worked very well, but I'm unique. In other words, as a lawyer, people want a lawyer who can get the job done. They want to know that you know how to win a case. It's a little bit different than selling widgets. And I get that. In fact, I was talking to Chris Brogan about this. And for those of you who don't follow Chris Brogan on social, he's a very well known blogger and and business consultant. And and Chris pointed out that uh, as a lawyer, maybe as a doctor, maybe as an accountant, you can raise the bar on that 10 or 20% to maybe 50, 60, 70%. Because People want to know that if they're going to hire you, you've got the credibility, the ability, the expertise to get the job done. Now, having said all that, I still like to back that ratio down to 10 or 20%. By doing that, I think what happens is you build trust. You build trust as a human being. When you build trust as a human being and there's somebody in New York that needs good legal counsel in California, what happens is they'll pick up the phone, they'll call you, they'll message you on Facebook, maybe DM you on Twitter. Because they trust that if you can help their referral, you will. But they also trust the fact that if you're, if it's not up my wheelhouse as a lawyer, I'll refer them to somebody in town that will take extremely good care of that individual. So it's an interesting dance. I think if you're selling a downloadable product, if you're selling, uh, if you're an author selling books and things like that, you have to balance sharing these pictures of you on stage to develop credibility with adding valuable, useful content that your audience that's going to help your audience. And the only way you can figure out what's going to help your audience is to really spend less time talking about yourself and more time asking open-ended questions, whether it's in blog posts, whether it's in live videos. You know whether it's in a tweet, and listen to what your audience is talking about. What's of interest to them, and how can you then step in and provide them with an exemplary client experience based upon who you are, what you do, and at all times keeping your why in mind and in the picture? That's the formula that works.
1: And listening to that back story of, of your view on that process, makes me really understand more of why the live streaming platform works. Because if you think about it, when you're on a live platform, there's a communication path that is not available in a one-sided post. It's a real time. There's this authenticity to it. You're at the beach. You're you're somewhere You like, hey, I may be sweaty or not, but here's this thing that I want to share with you. Live streaming seems to really lend itself to that authenticity, but at the same time being like, I just happen to be here on this stage. That's not really the point. My point is blank, but you've already got the fact that you're on stage and it comes across less humble braggy, but more authentic. So in your explanation, I can really see how it mends with you being known as the live streaming lawyer.
0: So let me jump in. It's it's the authenticity of the whole process, right? In other words, earlier in our conversation, you talked about somebody standing in front of a, a rented jet or leased home. And I get that. But no, you don't want to be that guy or gal that's just that's putting out content to try to make yourself look good. That that when it's all said and done, if somebody pulls back the curtain, you're you're not being truthful. You know, you're actually not doing the right thing because you're putting out misleading information. And so, for example, I love speaking, and if I'm at a convention, I love to pre-promote that invention convention. I like to share live videos or or traditional video from the stage. And then afterwards, I like to pump up the convention. It's fun to do. I think as long as you do that, where you're not talking about you, but you're talking about the people you've met, the purpose behind the convention and all the good things that particular organization is doing, that to me is what it's all about. But Ryan, it takes years to figure this stuff out, right? Right. I mean, the older I get, the wiser I get, and I'll just leave it at that.
1: Well, what I like about that is that there's so many people who are maybe self-identified as older, but they're thinking that they can't get caught up or they're behind the times. Mm. But you know, it's a great example that the older you get and the more chance you have to see the algorithmic changes and the new platforms and the things that live and the things that die. These are all tools that everyone, millennials to Gen X to you know, old farts alike, we can leverage these to create a stronger message with within these platforms to create the trust, to create these relationships. And that ultimately is how you know, it seems you get on stage, you you get these relationships where you come top of mind when somebody needs help with a certain thing, whether it's a client like you referenced in New York who needs a trial attorney in California or a conference that's across the world and they're trying to find what they can find and you just keep coming to that top of mind.
0: Top of mind is so critically important and social and digital have been the best platforms that I've ever come across that allows you to build top of mind awareness in a, in, a, in a proper way on a global basis. I just love using social for that reason. Now, having said all that, reputation's everything. And so you got to be careful on social media to always make sure you're doing the right thing. Uh, if you do you know, one bad mistake in life, in business, on social, can really destroy everything. And so you want to really be strategically, like I said, transparent about what you post, how you go about posting things, and always make sure to fact check, to do your due diligence before, for example, jumping into a business with somebody else or bringing somebody else up on stage with you. Do your homework and make sure you're doing the right thing and you're shining the spotlight on the right people. Because I will tell you, Ryan, one of the things I've noticed about social media is that it easily allows the digital foxes to get into the digital hen houses, Okay, anyone okay, can yeah. click and open up a free account and tell the world they're an expert about something and take your money. And it's only after the fact that you realize they're you know they're full of crap and that you need a good lawyer. So one of the my takeaways with social media is I love the platforms, but consumers need to do the due diligence. Be careful with how you set up your businesses. Be careful about setting up a business on social media, and especially on the digital platforms. Use offline business tools, corporations, limited liability companies, proper documentation to protect your rights, to protect your customers' rights, and treat your social media online businesses and experiences in a professional fashion. And when you do that, that's where the magic happens. And that's been my, that's what I preach about all the time. And that's how I get on stage at a lot of the big social media events is because I talk about they're, you know, most of the people in the audience are doing business online or they're thinking about doing business online, or frankly, they're social media agencies representing brands and connecting them with influencers. Think about all the legal issues involved with everything I just said. And so what I try to do is just share some really basic, easy to understand legal, legal in business principles with members in the audience to help them do all of that safely to avoid becoming the next fire festival. And for those listeners out there that aren't familiar with that, Google it because it's it's an eye-opener. But, you know, there's a right and wrong way to do business online. And and so I think that's been my niche is being that lawyer who has come around, respects the online process, but also maybe has some good tips to share with, with the audience.
1: Well, leave it as a true lawyer to end with a solid disclaimer to just basically put us all on guard that it is about being authentic, but also... Cya, and make sure that 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 authenticity is real, whether it's you or your business partners or people, because things can move very fast uh, on the online world. But unless you're structured in an offline capacity to protect yourself, it could be dangerous.
0: I could not have said it any better. You know, why don't we wrap things up with a famous quote by Mark Twain, and relevant to what you and I just said, and and what Mr. Twain once said was, "Do the right thing; it will gratify some people and astonish the rest."
1: Awesome. You can't do that unless you're out there sharing your why and whether it's 80-20, whether it's 50-50, there's a way to integrate what you do and the message that you want to share in a way that comes across as truthful, as authentic, and at the end of the day, you're just up there telling your story in bite-sized bits so that all the squirrels who are listening will pay attention long enough to get to understand what you want to share.
0: <laughs> Amen.
1: Well, hey, Mitch, this has been a blast. I'm looking forward to staying connected with you online. Hopefully, we'll share the stage sometime, and I know who I'm going to when I need an attorney. And it's uh, it's really been a pleasure, and I'm excited to continue to do this damn thing and get up there and spread the message and all that.
0: Well, we're going to do it in real life because you're just up up the road from my office. So just plan on grabbing dinner or lunch sometime in the near future, my friend.
1: Rocking. Sounds good. All right, everybody. And you can have a virtual dinner or virtual lunch with Mitch. Just find him on some of his live streams. And that's how cool things are. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, definitely leave a comment, a review. Share this with other people because it's sharing. Because you're caring, that makes the world go round. This is Ryan and Mitch, and we are signing out. Adios.